Ultimately, Q supporters are just going to have to face the fact that their guy lost in the highest voter turnout in U.S. history. Republicans have accepted it. They've looked at voter turnout and realized it is time to stop voter turnout. Yep. Sounds about right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Actually, it's just one reason. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Oh, I got a lot to and say. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. For a change. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGR. RN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the Bradcast. And here's some, I don't know if I should call it good news, but here's some news for you. (laughs) Okay. It's election day today. Once once again, yep, in a number of municipalities around the country. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. One of them is Palm Beach, Florida, which has a new, apparently permanent resident now, some guy by the name of Donald Trump. And according to the Palm Beach Post today, the disgraced former president is set to fulfill his civic duty as a private citizen and vote in the town of Palm Beach's municipal elections. Now, you may recall that Trump Uh, had a word or two to say about absentee voting over last year's presidential election cycle. I do Is that ringing a bell? Indeed. Uh, He slammed mail-in voting as fraudulent, except in his case, when he justified his uh, his own self voting by absentee ballot by saying that, you know, some people like himself had to. They had to vote absentee because... They didn't live in the state, but in his case, you know, he lived in the White House in Washington, D.C. Well, setting aside the fact that he actually had no permanent legal residence in Florida for voting purposes, uh, given the address that he used, Mar-a-Lago is actually not a private residence, but a commercial club where in 1993 he officially changed the property from a private residence to a commercial resort. And at the time, he promised the city that nobody would ever have a permanent residence there. But, you know, Donald Trump's promises are uh, 
just money in the bank, ain't they? <laughs> anyway, that agreement resulted in several complaints to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement that Trump himself was committing felony voter fraud by registering at and voting by absentee from the Palm Beach Resort property. And though uh, Florida Law uh, Department of Law Enforcement is obligated by statute to investigate any complaints of voter fraud, and several were made about all of this. Nonetheless, the disgraced former president has yet to be charged with voter fraud, no doubt, because he is a white male Republican who enjoys privileges that others would actually uh, go to jail for. So, as I said, setting that aside <laughs> for a moment, uh, as the Post reports today, the uh, Palm Beach Post Despite his false claims about mail voting during the 2020 election, Trump, who again now lives in the state, not at the White House, despite all of that, he requested a mail ballot on Friday uh, for the third time in his Palm Beach County voting history. Yes, even though his excuse for requesting a mail-in ballot previously was that he lived in D.C. at the White House, well, what's his excuse now? That he's just an opportunistic liar? Maybe. Uh, last year, after he was called out for his hypocrisy of blasting mail-in voting as a huge fraud, he said that things were different when it comes to uh, absentee voting in Florida, the state that he was pretending to live in at the time and unlawfully voting in. Uh, in an August tweet last year, Trump lauded Florida's vote-by-mail system saying, quote, whether you call it vote by mail or absentee voting in Florida, the election system is safe and secure, tried and true. Florida's voting system has been cleaned up, he said. So in Florida, I encourage all to request a ballot and vote by mail. He kind of... Uh, changes with the wind, doesn't he? Well, uh, I think he's like very he's consistent in one specific aspect. His inconsistency? Well, that too, but only votes cast by Republican voters are valid. And, right, and only in states where he says it is okay. Exactly. Anyway, nice that he's uh, able to enjoy the ability to cast a vote-by-mail ballot with no excuse necessary, even when he is currently living lawfully or not, in the very town in which he would be voting. Thanks in no small part to him, however, millions of others will not be that lucky in upcoming elections, most likely. Uh, I mentioned quickly some of what was going on in Georgia on yesterday's show. Some more specifics now for you today from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the uh, Georgia Senate passed a bill on Monday to roll back no-excuse absentee voting and require more voter ID, which would create new obstacles for voters after Republicans lost elections for president and the U.S. Senate. The legislation would reduce the availability of absentee voting. It would restrict it to those who are at least 65 years old have a physical disability, or are out of town. In addition, Georgians would need to provide a driver's license number, a state ID number, or some other identification when voting by mail. So good luck to 90-year-old Grandma Sadie with no driver's license uh, trying to figure out how to include that information when mailing in her ballot. But don't worry. Most of those over 65 who are voting in Georgia are white and lean Republican. So 
I'm sure it will all be just fine. It will all work out just fine. The Senate approved the bill on a party-line vote on Monday with a one-vote majority of the uh, chamber's 56 senators. Democrats unified against the voting limitations over three hours of passionate debate, saying the restrictions would especially harm black voters after struggles for ballot access during the civil rights movement. Four Republican senators excused themselves, good for them, from this vote, along with Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, the Senate's presiding officer. He opposed the bill, but he doesn't get a vote on it. Uh, He just left. He didn't want to be any part of this. The bill now advances to the state House of Representatives. The uh, measure would make it harder to vote in Georgia, says the uh, AJC. The state House has backed additional restrictions last week that would limit Sunday voting. Yes, that's souls to the polls days for many black voters. Who go after church to vote on Sunday altogether. So that seems particularly targeted toward black voters. You think? It would require ID for absentee voting and curb the use of ballot drop boxes. Can't have that. Too convenient. Republican senators proposed limits on who can cast absentee ballots after a record number of Georgians voted remotely last year. Over 1.3 million people voted absentee in the presidential election, which is more than a quarter of the state's total turnout of 5 million voters. Democrats correctly said the measure is based on former President Donald Trump's big lie that he had won the election. Even though statewide recounts, both by hand and by machine and overseen by Republicans, all verified that Democrat Joe Biden won Georgia by about 12,000 votes. But Republicans said additional safeguards are needed to restore voter confidence and prevent the possibility of voter fraud, even though the state election officials from their own party have said that there is no evidence whatsoever of widespread fraud. Curiously, GOP senators did not question the results of their own races. Yes, even though they were on the same ballot that they're now suggesting could have been fraudulent. Uh, And, you know, these are senators who won their elections on those same fraudulent ballots, if they were fraudulent, with zero evidence finding that they were. Any registered voter uh, has been uh, allowed to cast an absentee ballot without having to give an excuse or a reason since 2005. That's thanks to a bill that was passed by the Republican-controlled General Assembly at the time. But now they've had second thoughts about it, apparently. If the bill becomes law, about 2.8 million of Georgia's 7.7 million registered voters would still remain eligible to vote by absentee, according to the Republicans. But, of course, that also means that about 5 million will no longer be eligible. Democratic State Senator Nikki Merritt said the purpose of this bill and all of the the vote-limiting bills we have before us is to validate a lie. It is to prevent massive voter turnout from happening again especially in minority communities. An analysis by the Brennan Center for Justice found that black voters would bear the brunt of proposed absentee voting restrictions. 
About 31% of absentee ballots in November's elections were cast by black voters. That's an increase from four years earlier uh, when it was 23%. So it went uh, from 23% up to 31%, the share of uh, absentee ballots by black voters. At the same time, absentee voting by white voters dropped from 67% to 54% over the same period. And so now, of course, they're limiting absentee voting. Sadly, however, it is not just Georgia, not by a long shot. Brennan Center said the, uh, the, in their latest analysis that as of February 19, state lawmakers have carried over, pre-filed, or introduced 253 bills with provisions that restrict voting access in 43 different states. Uh, they are uh, have been tracking all of these suppressive bills, uh, and one of them is the uh, one of those states is the right leaning, though sometimes swingy state of Iowa, where Republicans also control the state legislature, and where, according to AP last night, Iowa's Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, on Monday, signed into law a Republican-backed bill that makes it harder to vote early. It also uh, erodes a key aspect of Democratic campaigns in a number of ways. Republicans in the House and Senate quickly approved the changes over the opposition of all Democratic legislators. What happened to that unity that Republicans were pretending that they were calling for after Joe Biden got elected? What happened there? Anyway, Republicans said the rules are needed to guard against voting fraud, though they noted that Iowa has no history of such fraud and that November's elections saw record turnout with no hint of problems in the state. Nonetheless, Governor Reynolds said election integrity must be protected, claiming the law provides election officials with consistent parameters for Election Day, for absentee voting and for database maintenance. Uh, She said in a statement after signing the bill, all of these additional steps promote more transparency and accountability, giving Iowans even greater confidence to cast their ballot. The law shortens the early voting period to 20 days from the current 29 days and uh, just three years after Republicans had already reduced that period from 40 days. It also requires most mail ballots to be received by Election Day rather than counting votes that are postmarked by Election Day, but that may arrive later. In the last election, more than 70 percent of Democrats voted early. So all of these restrictions, all of these limits on early voting, shortening the time, yes, is quite targeted. Voting sites on Election Day will close at 8 p.m. rather than 9 p.m. And county election officials are banned from sending out absentee ballot request forms unless one is requested. So, yes, you must send a request if you want to be able to request an absentee ballot. Satellite voting sites in Iowa also can only be set up if enough voters petition for one and voters will be removed. This is a good one. uh, Will be removed from active voting lists if they miss one single general election and fail to report a change in address or to re-register as a voter again. So Iowa, 
please don't miss a single election. The tighter deadlines for mail ballot, and by the way, that means, uh, you know, off-year elections. So if you want to vote for president in 2024, you better make sure that you vote for Congress uh, in the midterm elections in 2022. Or you may show up on Election Day in Iowa uh, in 2024 and find you don't get to vote. Please spread the word to everyone you know in Iowa. The uh, tighter deadlines for mail ballots will be a problem if postal service issues aren't worked out. That, according to Emily Parcell, she worked on Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. She now focuses on direct mail for campaigns nationwide. And I should note here that I have a, a, a family friend in Georgia who happens to be a listener. Uh, we'll see if she's listening today. She sent me a card uh, that she received. She emailed a, a photo of it that she received in the mail from Stacey Abrams' group uh, down in Georgia, reminding her to send in her absentee ballot to vote in the January 5 U.S. Senate runoff uh, in, in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, she received that card on January 16th. Hmm. So, yes, we need to deal with some postal service issues, don't we? Another new requirement in that Iowa law is that only close relatives, household members, or caregivers can drop off ballots. That means an end to a common practice of church members, friends, neighbors helping early voters to get their ballots in. But uh, Parcell, uh, who worked on Obama's uh, campaign, her biggest concern was the move to close polls an hour early. She says it creates a challenge for anybody in the state that has a full-time job and doesn't work in the city uh, where they live. Well, it didn't even take a day before Iowa signed this law and, yes, is now facing a new lawsuit from a civil rights group over the new voting restrictions, charging that the new law puts an undue burden on Iowans and their constitutional right to vote. The lawsuit was filed in direct in uh, district court by lawyers, including Mark Elias, who has come to uh, prominence for his nationwide election lawsuits representing Democratic entities. And he's done a hell of a job here. He was uh, tracking and or fighting and or winning some 60 uh, election challenges from Republicans uh, after the November election. Uh, this suit was filed by Elias on behalf of the League of United Latin American Citizens of Iowa. The defendants in the case are the Iowa Secretary of State and the Attorney General. The suit says that what makes this bill baffling and fatally unconstitutional is that it lacks any cognizable justification for these burdensome effects on the franchise. In other words, there's no reason for these. Uh, they are just doing them. The only reason for them is to suppress the vote, which he says is unconstitutional. The bill, he says, is largely a grab bag of amendments and new restrictions that lack any unifying theme other than making both absentee and Election Day voting more difficult for lawful Iowa voters. He says the bill is an uh, the, the suit says the bill is an exercise in voter suppression, one disguised as a solution for a problem that exists only in the fertile imaginations of its creators. Now, parts of both Iowa's law and Georgia's proposed laws and the myriad proposals being moved forward by Republicans in state houses around the country right now would, in fact, be blocked 
by H.R. 1, the For the People Act, a major election and voting rights bill that was approved by the U.S. House on the federal level last week. Nonetheless, Democrats uh, are going to have to convince Joe Manchin to allow some sort of filibuster reform or that uh, bill's prospects in the Senate, well, are going to be nothing. This will not move forward. These voter restrictions, these these suppression measures around the country will continue and they will probably stick in many cases. So somehow uh, we've all got to look, keep looking forward to the next election, even while Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress also at the same time must look back at cleaning up the corrupt disasters at dozens of federal agencies that the Trump administration put in place just before leaving office in January. There is a way, however, that they can do that without running into a problem with the filibuster. But at this point, they're going to have to act fast if they want to do it. Matt Kent of Public Citizen joins us next to discuss the Congressional Review Act If Democrats are quick enough to invoke it, he'll join me next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. I'm I'm pretty sure that Jojo there is Joe Biden, if I'm not mistaken. I'm almost certain of it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. The rollbacks of so many of the Trump-era nightmares continue sort of around the clock under the Joe Biden presidency right now. Stuff both big and small is being reversed and restored to something that uh, represents a little closer to what we might describe as normal. Among the small stuff, for example, a Official presidential portraits of former presidents George W. Bush and Bill Clinton have now reportedly been returned to prominent hanging locations in the Biden White House after they were after they were removed during the Trump administration last July. According to CNN, the portraits of the recent presidents had been replaced over the summer by two portraits of Republican presidents who served more than a century ago. An official told CNN the Bush and Clinton portraits are now back on display in the grand foyer at the executive mansion, where portraits of the most recent American presidents are traditionally given high visibility. The relocation of the portraits to a place of prominence comes after an earlier report that the Trump White House had moved the paintings of both Clinton and Bush into the old family dining room, a seldom used room that is not typically seen by visitors. The official portrait of former President Barack Obama, by the way, has not yet been unveiled. I suspect that was uh, put off on purpose during the uh, Trump administration, so it is not yet clear when or where 
Uh, Obama's portrait will be featured in the Biden White House. And then there are the larger, more substantive rollbacks from the Trump era. For example, according to NBC Today, the Biden administration notified the Supreme Court on Tuesday that it will no longer defend a government policy seeking to impose new limits on the admission of immigrants considered likely to become dependent on government benefits. The Trump Department of Homeland Security announced in 2019 that it would expand the definition of public charge to be applied to people who could be denied immigration uh, status because of a concern that they would depend on the government for assistance. You know, never mind that whole give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses nonsense. If you didn't show up here with the money in your pocket to support yourself right off the bat, well, you are not welcome. At least that was the case under the Trump administration. In the past, public charge had been largely based on an assessment that an immigrant would be dependent on cash benefits. The Trump administration, however, hoped to broaden the definition to include non-cash benefits like Medicaid, supplemental nutrition like food stamps or federal housing assistance. Anyone that they deemed likely to require a broader range of help would be swept into this expanded definition of public charge, which would then be used to reject their admission. The Trump policy redefining public charge to add non-cash benefits and other factors like age, financial resources, employment history, education and health argued that the expansion would reinforce, quote, the ideals of self-sufficiency and personal responsibility. But in response to a series of lawsuits, lower courts were divided on whether the revised rule actually violated federal law. So the Trump administration appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday. However, the Biden Justice Department notified the court that the administration agreed with the local governments challenging the policy that the cases should be dismissed. Pre uh, President Biden signaled his intent to change the policy in February, signing an executive order that directed federal agencies to review that Trump rule. It was, of course, just one of dozens of executive orders that he signed to roll back the many corrupt excesses of the pre previous administration. But in fact, there were hundreds, perhaps thousands of such measures, rollbacks of the previous administration policies taken over the past four years. Many of them related to energy and the environment, as we have been reporting for several months on our Green News Report segment. And many carried out by Trump officials at the very last minute before Trump's removal from office. And while most such Last-minute regulatory rollbacks were in the energy and environment sectors. Many others were not, as noted on immigration. Or, as a new report out this month from the nonpartisan good government watchdog group Public Citizen notes, regulatory rollbacks on consumer and civil rights, labor, agriculture, and in the financial sector were all carried out at the last minute and, as the report's authors Amit Narang and Matt Kent note, were done in such a way that the Trump administration violated an obscure regulatory law called the Congressional Review Act, making the last-minute regulatory rollbacks more legally vulnerable to reversal under the Biden administration. 
which they argue now has an opportunity to more easily take off the books numerous deregulatory actions that were not properly submitted to Congress in a timely manner as required under the CRA. The new report finds that at least 25 late-term Trump rules never took legal effect, including 15 environmental rules, such as the EPA's ozone standard, the airplane greenhouse gas rule, and the science transparency rule, not to mention rules from the Department of Interior, Energy, USDA, NOAA, Department of Justice, Transportation, Labor, HUD, HHS, the Veterans Administration, DHS, and others, all of which, the report's authors point out, could now be simply taken off the books by the new administration and or a vote by the U.S. Senate that is crucially not required to overcome a filibuster under this law. Joining us now to discuss this admittedly wonky but really important uh, uh, procedure here uh, it's likely very important, uh, this Congressional Review Act, or CRA, is one of the report's co-authors, Matt Kent, a regulatory policy associate with Public Citizen, a great organization that has been championing the public interest by standing up to corporate power and holding government accountable for nearly 50 years. Oh, Matt Kent, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, this, uh, as you know, as we noted, this can be wonky stuff, but it's it's really important to a whole boatload of terrible policies instituted at the last minute, uh, correctly or otherwise, uh, by the Trump administration. So I'm hoping we can sort of simplify this as much as possible. I will leave that to you, however, Matt. First, uh, can you just explain? First, what the Congressional Review Act, or CRA, actually is, and then we can get into the details later about how the Trump administration appears to have screwed up a few things uh, under it. So how, how did the CRA come about? What is it supposed to allow Congress and presidents to do? Sure. So uh, the Congressional Review Act, uh, or the, the CRA, um, was a product of the Clinton-era Congress, uh, this is, you know, uh, thinking back to Newt Gingrich's mm -hmm. contract with America. Right. Um, at the time, there was a lot of concern, um, probably not rightfully so, but a lot of concern about this idea that there are too many regulations happening, too many um, actions by uh, government agencies burdening business, um, other parts of the economy. Um, since that time, we've, you know, looking back, really rethought that, um, rethought that whole frame and um, the idea that public protections or regulations are some sort of burden on the economy is not really uh, widely held. But anyway, the, the CRA essentially gives Congress the ability to claw back uh, actions by the executive branch, so mm -hmm. act actions by federal agencies, and wipe them off the books, do away with them. So um, basically how it would work would be uh, an agency would go through the process of creating a rule, which is, you know, can, can last anywhere from a few months to a few years. Mm -hmm. uh, it would finalize that rule, and then Congress would vote with the signature of the president to do away with the rule. So obviously this wouldn't happen uh, any other time except for when there's a transition. Um, so when you're going from uh, the government, uh, the executive branch, mm -hmm. a president of one party, uh, 
Congress switches, but the CRA gives you an, gives that new Congress the ability to reach back uh, and undo actions by the past administration. So the CRA wasn't really used. It was used once um, by Republicans to undo a Clinton uh, administration rule from the Department of Labor. Uh-huh. Um, it wasn't used until the beginning of the Trump administration to undo uh, 17 rules and regulations from uh, the Obama era. So they really kind of started off this this uh, use of the CRA that we're now uh, we're now in the era of. And so that was th- those would be rules that were passed uh, at the end of the Obama administration, or in this case, at the end of the Trump administration, uh, for. Is there is it 60 legislative days before the end of the administration uh, rules that were adopted during that time? Do I understand that correctly? That's right. That's the that's the the the, the law says that anything uh, completed within 60 legislative days of the end of um, the preceding Congress. So mm-hmm. for our for our purposes, anything that the Trump administration finalized uh, by August 21st. 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything after that is, is available to be undone by this Congress. However, uh, you know, as our report uh, uh-huh. casts light on, that is a, that that date is a little more complicated, and there's a real opportunity here for the Biden administration to more or less supercharge, uh, and, and the Democratic Congress more or less supercharge their efforts to use the CRA to really expand the scope of regulations that are available to be uh to be removed and deregulatory actions is a better way to put it. And and I want to sort of emphasize that that 60 days, you say it goes back to about August 20 or so, uh, I guess because uh, Congress is not in session and doesn't actually have a legislative day uh, so frequently that we actually have to go from January 20 of this year all the way back to August 20 of last year to get 60 legislative days out of it. Uh, and then... After the uh, new president comes in, as I understand it, then Congress has another 60 legislative days in order to take this action to essentially vote down with a simple uh, majority, I guess, in both houses. Uh, No filibuster in the Senate. They can just, boom, remove these uh, regulations from the books. Right. So that's the big appeal, right? Mm -hmm. This This is a filibuster Buster. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something you can really get ar- get around. You know, uh, a huge roadblock in the Senate. That's the way it was designed uh, by the Republicans who created the the law. And also, you know, the CRA is something that we've been railing against for a long time. And it, it, it we, public citizen as well as a lot of the uh, progressive regulatory community maintain that it's a bad law, but. Also, you know, turnabout is fair play, and this is an opportunity to, to really, um, you know, go to go to the, the end we have to mm-hmm. to, to undo uh, <laughs> some some really really uh, terrible Trump deregulatory action. Yeah, you were against the CRA before, Matt. You sure do like it now, it seems, <laughs> uh, and actually for good reason. So, okay, so we talked about the sixty legislative days before the tr- uh, tr- uh, uh, inauguration, and the, the sixty legislative days after to take action, but. There are a couple of screw ups, it appears, both in by the Obama administration and by the Trump administration. Let's start with the Obama administration. Uh, I guess it's a screw up. Uh, You note 
that uh, during the Trump administration, Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey argued that because a guidance document issued by Obama's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau back in 2015, because that had not been submitted to Congress under the CRA as required, that it had never taken legal effect, and that allowed Congress to use the CRA to repeal the guidance document in 2018. That would be three years after it was issued. I remember when he made that argument, were they successful in using the CRA that way? And if so, does that open up a whole bunch of regulations that uh, could be rolled back, uh, you know, going back way beyond the 60 legislative days of the Trump administration? So possibly. Um, So you referenced um, the CFPB auto lending guidance uh, experience, and that really was... um, unprecedented when it happened. Um, so uh, to back up for a second, the CRA has these submission requirements, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the law says that um, rules and regulations don't take effect until they're submitted to both houses of Congress. Mm-hmm. So in the past, uh, submission had been spotty at best, right? Agencies finalize the rule. There's a lot of, a lot of rules going through mm-hmm. um, the regulatory process, um, submission to the agency sometimes didn't happen. And a lot of the time, agencies didn't think they had to submit to Congress. So mm-hmm. there was some confusion on that end. So it was a bit cynical of the Republicans to use this in 2017 to undo something um, that was basically designed to uh, provide vulnerable populations access to credit in the, in the auto lending market. So uh, when that happened... Basically, the, the the CRA world took notice, and the submission requirements became a real, real hot issue. Mm-hmm. Um, that same logic applies to this, mm-hmm. um, to, to the report that we released, right? So um, the lack of submission causes some serious legal uncertainties here uh, that the Biden administration has an opportunity to more or less take advantage of. Well, yeah, you say turnabout is fair play. They did it, so there's no reason the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress can't do it. You found, for example, that uh, the rollbacks under uh, uh, Trump of LGBTQ protections pursuant to an executive order that Trump issued in 2018 have not yet actually been submitted to the Senate, despite having been submitted to the House uh, on uh, January 11, 2021, I guess, at the uh, at the very last minute. So something like that could simply be rolled back because they didn't cross the T's and dot the I's and make sure to uh, submit that regulation to both houses of Congress? That's right. That's, that, that's the best way to put it. That's right. So nice. So what uh, <laughs> what what other sort of regulations are we now talking about here? Uh, just by way of example of what Congress or or Biden uh, could do away with very easily right now. I guess if as long as they act within the sixty. Actually, I guess they don't need to act anymore within the sixty days, according to the the Toomey rule rule from uh, from twenty eighteen. But what sort of regulations are we talking about? So as you noted um, at the top, uh, a lot in the energy environment um, sphere, and you know it's it's kind of a shame, right? Because there was so much damage done um, to environmental protection during the Trump era, mm-hmm. um, especially clean air standards, um, clean energy standards. You know, we all uh, we all remember the the Trump's showerhead rule and things things along those lines. Yes. So. 
um, there are a huge, you know, not not a huge, but a, a good slice of these non-submitted rules mm-hmm. uh, are from EPA, uh, Department of Energy. Um, there's a rule having to do with Alaska, Alaska's Tongass, Na- Tongass National Forest, mm-hmm. um, which would open the forest um, to logging. Um, so there's a lot of things uh, along that, along those lines. Um, the immigration space as well, we found a few non-submissions there, especially in rules having to deal with um, the asylum system, which uh, the Trump administration did its best to uh, really, really decimate. Um, and another uh, interesting one, um, which, which we noted, had to do with uh, this federal executions rule, um, which at the time was a last-minute Justice Department rule um, that would basically uh, open up uh, federal means of execution to the state input, um, which could essentially lead down the, p- the path of methods of, of execution, including the, the electric chair, some mm-hmm. real kind of medieval things. So mm-hmm. um, that, that Department of Justice regulation was not submitted um, to Congress. So as is the case with, with that regulation, as well as pretty much everything on this list, we know that the Biden administration is going to to roll undo these rollbacks, right? Uh-huh. Roll, um, but this is, a, this is a means to do it, which is quick and um, allows them to move um, with authority mm-hmm. um, relatively swiftly. So uh, it, it's an option rather than being tied up in months to years of litigation or even rulemaking. So, yeah, because it takes a long time to challenge these in courts, or it takes often an even longer time to actually create a new rule to replace uh, the old rule. The, uh, to, if you're you know, going to do it just the way it's supposed to be done, I guess. And as I understand it, uh, well, so how does this work? Does Congress... Uh, simply take a list of uh, these regulations they feel like they can roll back and hold a vote, and that is that? Uh, or are these done one at a time? Uh, what, what sort of process are we looking at here? For the CRA in general or uh, the process we're talking about in, in this report? I guess the two are, well... In rolling back, like what would it, uh, how, you know, what, what, how quickly do they need to take action at this point to make sure that they can mm-hmm. roll back these rollbacks? So in terms of, um, generally speaking, Congress has to act pretty quickly, in the next couple weeks, actually. So the, the date to know right now is April 4th. Mm-hmm. Members of Congress have to introduce resolutions. Um, they're called resolutions of disapproval, mm-hmm. and they can only include one regulation at a time. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is a real concern in terms of floor time, right? So um, you can't package together... Uh, everything that you don't like the Trump administration did and put it in one legislative vehicle, you have to do one at a time. Mm-hmm. So members of Congress have to introduce those disapproval resolutions by April 4th, and the special sort of you know magical procedures that allow you to avoid the filibuster probably only last, in our best estimation, until the second or third week of May. So mm-hmm. really, the, the, you know, the sands are, are, are uh, moving through the hourglass mm-hmm. here, we're, we're, we're coming up against it a little bit. So far, there have not been any Congressional Review Act resolutions um, oh. introduced at all. Um, Is that a surprise? Would we expect that there should have been by now? I think at the beginning, 
I, I, I'm on the record at, at the beginning of the administration as saying that I think we see somewhere between five and ten. Um, it is. I, I am a little surprised um, that that no Democrat has introduced a disapproval resolution. Um, there are a few other factors at play, of course. Um, things are delayed, of course, uh, by what we had in Cong- on the Hill. We had an impeachment trial. We had mm-hmm. an insurrection. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. At, it's it's actually pretty wild. Um, the A lot of this report has to do with um, submission to Congress, and the submission goes to that parliamentarian's office. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, during the insurrection, the parliamentarian's office was sacked. Yeah, I mean, it was turned upside down. Yeah, there's, it's you know, it's pretty likely that that disrupted the submission process if there were submissions happening. Wow. So it's, it's a real, yeah, it's a really interesting um, tie-in. But anyway, in terms of uh, the introduction, I think we'll probably see some in the next uh, few weeks, but um, the pace has definitely been slow. Wow. Well, I hope they don't screw this up. I hope they, I mean, because it does seem like a very easy way to roll back a lot of these things and. Uh, and I suspect this is something that you also don't care about uh, or, or, you know, don't don't care for in the uh, uh, CRA. But it also prohibits if Congress does roll these back, uh, as I understand the law, it also prohibits the reissuing of the rule in a substantially similar form down the road. So once they kill these, uh, the, you know, the, the, the showerhead rule or the, uh, you know, the, the roads throughout the Tongass National Forest, those can't be put back in place later, barring an actual law passed by Congress to do it. It can't be put back uh, in through just a simple uh, regulatory rule, as I understand it. Uh, Matt Kent, this finally, you know, with, with all of this, it kind of seems like a crazy way to run a government where things can so easily be reversed and reversed again and rolled back again. You know, in this case... Uh, you know, I guess it's uh, I, I suppose we should be happy that we can roll back some of these excesses from the Trump administration. But Public Citizen has stated it is no fan of the CRA. Would you like to see it done away with entirely? I know that uh, Cory Booker and Tom Udall, I believe, tried to do that back in 2017. That was never allowed to come up for a vote under Mitch McConnell. But would you simply like to see it done away with or rewritten entirely? So, you know, the phrase we use uh, around here uh, is pull up the ladder, right? So you use the, the, the CRA mm-hmm. and then you repeal it. It is a extremely poorly drafted law. It's asymmetric. It's designed to cut against the issuance of public protection. It's, a, it's essentially a, a Republican idea. Repealing, repealing the CRA is the best way to get onto a path where agencies are allowed to uh, issue rules based on expertise, based on science, and uh, things, it, it would lead to a more stable form of government, right? The crazy thing about this is Congress has the ability to direct agencies to, to do, you don't need this process, right? Mm-hmm. Congress should be able to direct agencies um, uh, to make uh, regulations uh, according to the law. It's dysfunctional. Um, that we've been, you know, led down this, this path. Even the even the fact that we have to argue about submission dates and, and issue a report like this is really an indictment of uh, extremely flawed laws. So absolutely, I mean, 
this is something that needs to go, and it's, it's something that um, is anti-regulatory uh, in nature. So your plan, uh, Matt, uh, roll back some of these laws under the CRA, pull up the ladder by getting rid of the CRA, and then when Donald Trump comes back in for another four years in 2024, you're going to be glad the CRA is gone in 2028, are you? <laughs> yeah, I, listen, it, uh, a lot can happen in four years. So, I, <laughs> you know, I, I don't exactly, uh, I don't know what's going to happen in 2024, <laughs> but in terms of the present, um, you know, this thing, this thing's got to go. And as well as, uh, as well as uh, Trump's deregulation, that's for sure. Matt Kent is a regulatory policy associate with Public Citizen. You can, of course, find their work at citizen.org. You can find them on the Twitters at public underscore citizen. You can find uh, Matt on the Twitters. He is Kent underscore Pub Citizen, and you can find his report with Amit Narong at Public Citizen. Uh, it's we'll link to it, of course, from Bradblog.com. But it is titled "Rolling Back the Clock on Trump's Last-Minute Regulatory Rollbacks." Uh, thank you for staying on this, uh, Matt, and I hope you will begin pressing those Democrats to take advantage of this. You kind of uh, have scared me that there has not been a lot of action yet on this. I've been counting on this for a lot of the rollbacks. So you know, please give us a shout if we can uh, help make some noise and, and push some of these Democrats to make sure they're paying attention to this. I'm right there with you. Thanks, Matt. Great talking to you, sir. See you, Brad. Thanks. I'm, I'm quite disturbed by that, Desi. I know. <laughs> I don't know why. It seems like Democrats would have had this stuff lined up like, you know, airplanes landing at O'Hare Airport at this point, one after another. Where are they? That's a great question, and I hope that uh, people will contact their representatives and say, hey, why aren't you paying attention to this? So the Congressional Review Act, the CRA, they all know what it is. They should know what it is. Yeah. I mean, Democrats have been doing uh, marginally well in Congress, and so I really hope they do not screw this one up. This one seems like a gimme at this point. Help remind them. <sighs> Working on it. All right, quick break, and we're back with, I guess, more rollback news <laughs> in the latest Green News Report. That's straight ahead with Desi Doyen. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know, I, I really I want to move forward. There's a lot of important stuff that Democrats need to do. Oh, yeah. Uh, that the country uh, needs the, um, the the American Rescue Plan passed by the Senate. It'll be passed by the House any moment now. Is really good. A really good bill. The $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill yeah. is really good. It's really progressive. Uh, so Democrats are moving forward in that regard. Um, but, uh, of course, I always want more. <laughs> At the same time, we have to keep looking back to clean up the mess. All of that in our latest Green News report. Last week's OPEC decision not to raise oil production is really causing gas prices to soar. Global oil prices are rising again, and so is the price at the pump. 
Interior Department moving swiftly to roll back Trump-era rollbacks. Plus, switching away from gas to electricity is the most efficient way to eliminate carbon emissions from most buildings by 2050. But not if cities are blocked from doing so. Are they being blocked from doing so? Yep. All of those outrages and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. A crude awakening, oil prices hitting their highest level since October 2018. And Maria Bartiromo and Fox News don't know whether to be outraged about it or delighted. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, if there's one thing I have been consistent about over the years is that every time there is an oil spill, I always warn people, do not listen to the initial numbers that come out from the company because they're always either lying or they're just making it up and the numbers turn out to be way, way higher than they let on. Oh, yes. And that is indeed true for a fossil fuel spill in a North Carolina nature preserve last August. The company that owns the aging Colonial Pipeline initially estimated the rupture spilled about 63,000 gallons of gasoline. Oh, that's all 63,000 gallons. But Earther reports that the company quietly filed a new assessment. The actual spill is not 63,000 gallons, but closer to... 1.2 million gallons. Oh, there you go. Who could have guessed it? The pipeline highlights the next big issue for American fossil fuel infrastructure. What to do about decrepit aging pipelines as the country shifts to clean energy. This is a huge pipeline and it is a huge spill. But because they downplayed it when it initially happened a few months ago, nobody even knows about it. That's right. Global oil prices are heading up again after falling to unheard of lows as coronavirus shutdowns crushed demand for fossil fuels over the last year. And that means retail gas prices and pollution are increasing as well. The rise in gas prices is due in part to fossil fuel ramping up again and an attack on Saudi Arabian oil facilities over the weekend and because OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, agreed last week to maintain production cuts to keep supplies low and prices high. A growing number of cities across the country are attempting to update their building codes to ban natural gas and shift to electrification to combat climate change. That's good. But that has just been thwarted. Uh-oh. Huffington Post reports that the International Code Council, a private nonprofit consortium that oversees much of the nation's building codes, voted late last week to strip local governments of their rights to set future <laughs> energy efficiency codes. Wait, what? That after intense lobbying from construction and gas industry groups. The new system allows local officials to give input on new codes, but industry will effectively control the outcome. So this International Code Council, they are elected by whom exactly? It's a complicated system how they came to control establishing most of the nation's building codes it's going to be complicated to unwind. The American Institute of Architects called their decision, quote, a step backwards for climate action. Environmental groups are calling on the Biden administration or Congress to step in and set up a new oversight body. So this 
unelected oversight body makes these decisions after they get payments from the oil and gas industry. Nothing shady there at all. Coal mining company Black Jewel has asked a bankruptcy court to allow it to shed its financial responsibility to clean up its abandoned mines. Oh, nothing shady there either. Black Jewel is hoping to walk away from almost 200 mining permits in four states, setting up a potential crisis over cleanup and reclamation. Black Jewel's bankruptcy is another sign of trouble for the coal industry and states and communities reliant on coal for jobs and for taxpayers who may be stuck with the bill for cleanup and pensions. Black Jewel. But some good news. Biden's nominee to head the Interior Department, Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico, appears headed to confirmation in the U.S. Senate, and the department itself is already moving fast. The Interior Department recently scrapped the Trump administration's controversial open science dictate that restricted the kinds of research the agency was allowed to use in making important environmental policy decisions. The open science dictate restricted the type of science they could use. Yes. Got it. And on Monday, the department tossed the Trump administration's egregious rollback of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that gutted protections for hundreds of species of migratory birds, effectively legalizing all unintentional migratory bird deaths. So it's a rollback, rollback, rollback? Basically. Okay, this is a great system. But we'll take what we can get. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. great song. Thank you very much. Desi Doyen, our producer, thanks to my guest today, Matt Kent of Public Citizen and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. It is always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. All of our shows going back years and years are available there. Uh, Take a walk through history. Uh, that is all made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We couldn't do it without you, so thank you. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Bro!